You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Dominic Chu. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. The employment problem. Is the labor supply shortage here to stay? Now, if it is, it could have a big impact on investors, inflation, and the Fed's next move. Plus, one of the largest pipelines in the U.S. is forced to close down following that cyber attack. After a big jump, the energy complex is turning lower as the company says it may be back online soon. We've got the latest there. And is the street too, too bullish about Facebook's growth? CEO pay outrage and AMC takes a chance on a new strategy. We'll have more on that. But we'll begin with the markets here. Now, if you take a look at the way things are shaping up, Scott mentioned the Dow record high. We'll put a star up there for them because, yes, it was. We are about 250 points to the upside right now. The S&P 4,228, the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite continuing the trend that we've seen so far in 2021. The severe underperformer off by about 1.5%, while the Dow is up about about three-quarters of 1%. We'll watch to see if that dynamic plays out in the afternoon trade. Also, keeping a close eye on what's happening with certain key parts of the market that many investors are focused on, specifically communication services and technology. Those two sectors, two of the severe underperformers today, the S&P 500 over the last one week period is up roughly 1%. Meanwhile, comm services and technology down about a quarter of 1% for comms and then about 1.5% for technology overall. And then another record high for copper prices. We're going to talk a little bit about inflation later on, but still take a look at copper prices now up over the last week, 4%, a new record high there. Freeport, MacBrand, Southern Copper, two of the beneficiaries there. You can see the orange line and the green line here moving to the upside over the course of the last week. So watch copper prices. Again, that material story is playing out big thematically with many traders and investors today. Now let's stick with commodities. Breaking news in just the last few minutes on the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. The company giving new guidance for when it expects to be up and running fully again. Brian Sullivan has been following that story for us. Brian. Hey, Dom. Yeah, and the story has dramatically changed in just the last hour or so, because as of an hour ago, we had no indication of when the pipeline might restart. Now we do, although it's still a little, like the story itself, a little bit murky. Okay, so we got a press release, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes ago from the Colonial Pipeline saying they hope to, quote, substantially restore operational service by the end of the week. A lot of questions there. What does substantially mean? Does that mean the entire pipeline? Does it mean a little bit less than the entire pipeline? Is the end of the week Saturday night or the end of the work week on Friday? Either way, today's Monday. So if that holds true, there is no quick fix. It will take some time. In fact, this is the first time ever that the entire pipeline has been shut down. There have been parts, large parts, shut down. First time you heard White House officials say the entire thing was shut off. Now, in that press conference at the White House, you saw in the halftime report, the government saying they're looking at supplies. They want to make sure there is enough inventory and supply of gasoline, jet fuel, et cetera, to supply it. Remember, 45% of all fuel consumption in the east and the southeast comes from the Colonial Pipeline. The White House also saying they're looking at all kinds of other options if supplies are needed. Here's the problem. In the New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia area, not a lot of other options. You could ship it in from Europe or even suspend the Jones Act, bring it up from Houston. That takes a long time. You got to fill ships, get them here as well. You got marginal rail service. So they're asking for any ideas for supplies 
And also, by the way, Dom, asking utilities and Colonial Pipeline, we assume, to share any details about this attack. And, of course, the White House saying minutes ago that private companies can decide whether or not they want to pay ransom. The government will not, as your Damon say, they don't want you to, but they will not tell you what to do. And it's up to private companies to provide their own security. So, theoretically, Dom, the Colonial Pipeline, which has been down since Friday night, arguably the most important energy art- artifact and artery in the United States, I should say artifact, it's over 50 years old, uh, will be back online in some form by the, quote, end of the week. Again, what that looks like, the market will monitor. Pipeline stocks are up. Most oil and gas stocks are up because most everybody we've talked to says this is sadly bullish because traders might have to go into the open market and buy refined products or crude oil. So, so Brian, let's kind of explore that angle there, because we've been talking a lot this morning about some of the ripple effects from this particular move. The Colonial Pipeline, for, for many of the viewers out there, listeners who don't know, is a privately held organization. It's owned by a number of different privately held companies, including maybe some shares owned by maybe public oil companies or their affiliates, that sort of thing. The bottom line is you cannot just buy stock in the Colonial Pipeline, but you can buy stock in other parts of the pipeline infrastructure trade right now. Take us through the mechanics of why you are seeing midstream pipeline operators, other ones that do have master limited partnerships, trade up on this kind of news when this does represent a threat to everybody in that midstream business. All right, Dom. So, I mean, listen, it's economics 101. Number one, the price of the actual fuels. Forget about the Colonial Pipeline shutdown. The last couple of months, the price of oil and gasoline has gone up. In fact, the Colonial Pipeline has been shut down in parts for a couple days and I think 10 days back in, I think it was 2016. And the price of gasoline rose about 30 cents before falling again. The uptrend is up when commodity prices are up. Some of the pipeline owners and operators can make more money in their new contract negotiations. But the real money is this, Dom, is that if you've got something that has a value and there is a fixed amount of new supply or even less supply coming on the market or being taken off the market, the value of that asset does what? It tends to go up. The Colonial Pipeline, they've got their ransomware issue. There's other pipeline stories going on right now, Dom. The Dakota Access Pipeline may be the most important or second most important pipeline in America after the Colonial. A judge could rule any day now that it has to be shut down for a new environmental review. On Wednesday is the deadline that the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, gave six months ago for Enbridge to basically fix or suspend a part of what they call Line 5, a major pipeline that goes from Wisconsin through the Mackinac Island Straits. So we could have the Dakota Access Pipeline shut off in a day or a week or whenever the ruling comes out. We could have Enbridge's Line 5, if the governor of Michigan stands by what she said, go offline on Wednesday as well. Colonial, not back online. Try to build a new pipeline right now, Dom. I guarantee you, just ask the owners of the Keystone XL it's not easy. So if you got one, it's going to have more value. That was a two-minute answer 
that should have been 20 seconds, but I'm tired. <laughs> no, no, of course. It's a complex issue for sure. A lot of cross currents here and a lot of variables. Brian Sullivan, I know you'll be all over the story for us in the coming hours and days here. Thank you very much. Now, the potential for a quick restoring, possibly, of that pipeline takes maybe the threat of inflation from rising gasoline prices out of the picture longer term. But that's just one piece of the puzzle of growing inflation concerns among investors. Now, one of the biggest ones is labor, especially in light of what happened with that jobs report on Friday. Now, take a look. The folks at Goldman Sachs, the analysts took a look at the sectors in the S&P 500 to look at which ones have the highest labor costs and which ones have the lowest relative ones. Among the highest labor costs, industrials, they estimate, 19% of total revenues there go to labor. Technology, around 16, and same with healthcare. Remember, the 13 is about the percentage that the S&P is on average. Now, take a look at some of the lower relative labor costs here as well. If you look at those sectors, energy, speaking of oil and gas, 5%, most of theirs is tied up in capital expenditures, real estate at 6%, and staples at 8% as well. Now, if you take a look overall, the low labor cost type stocks, the one with fewer labor costs as part of their capital structure, have generally been outperforming over the last year or so here, according to a basket of stocks that Goldman tracks that have low labor costs compared to high labor cost ones. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of some of the companies they track, when it comes to high labor costs, they look at certain names overall, like, say, you know, technology ones, also industrial names and transportation ones, UPS, Truist Financial, a bank, Salesforce, high labor intensive costs. Some of those types of companies in their estimation are. Meanwhile, you take a look at some of the ones that have the lower relative labor costs to the rest of the overall market. We're talking about names like Apple, Nike, Amerisource, Bergen, just to name a few. So, again, analysts at Goldman Sachs tracking a low cost labor basket versus a high cost labor basket as if the beginning part of this year lower cost labor has outperformed the higher cost labor now for more on how these trends are impacting employment across the country steve leesman is looking at whether this labor supply shortage is signaling a new normal for the overall economy and kate rogers is tracking the restaurants as they hunt for workers to fill all those open positions we hear about anecdotally steve let's start with you Thanks, Tom. Yeah, forecasters spent the weekend soul-searching their models, trying to figure out what went wrong Friday with what amounted to the biggest, one of the biggest job misses in decades. They've divided into two camps. Those who say it's just a blip and those who worry the U.S. could be settling into a lengthy period of labor supply shortages. One big reason for the surprise, women left the workforce. But Burbio, which tracks school openings, reports that April saw the biggest one-month increase in schools, te- schools teaching in the traditional way since October. So the link between reopenings and women coming back to the workforce, that broke in April. In an exclusive interview, Chicago Fed President uh, Charles Evans said supply chain issues and school openings may still be playing a role in limiting labor supply. We lost 64,000 women in the uh, employment numbers in April. Um, that sounds to me like child care is still an issue. Uh, schools are not uh, open, you know, five days a week, regular hours. So even if they're open, but they're irregular hours, that means that they're child care issues. Some caregivers may decide not to return until the fall. That could combine with you know, the higher unemployment benefits, keeping some people on the sidelines, and a reluctance of some to return to work for health reasons to depress labor supply. Strong economic growth could be hit with limited labor supply. That would drive up wages and create what Ian Shepard said from Pantheon calls a, quote, long, hot summer for the Fed, Dominic. 
All right. So so that inflation for sure, a, a hot issue for many economists out there. Steve, thank you very much for that. And as restaurants look to recover from the pandemic, they're on the hunt for workers as well, using everything they can to entice job applicants. Kate Rogers has that story for us. Kate. Well, Dom, you said it. Every company that I speak to, both large and small, is currently looking for workers, and the competition is really on. In fact, Chipotle announcing this morning it's increasing its restaurant pay to $15 an hour average wage by the end of June. Starting hourly crew wages will range from $11 to $18. Now, those who advance to the highest general manager position can make an average compensation of $100,000 a year. The company is also offering referral bonuses right now. The talent crunch is impacting businesses really across the country. La Familia Cortez Restaurants is feeling that pressure as diners are returning in droves. The company needs to hire 300 more workers for its five locations. We're having to do some extraordinary things in terms of referral bonuses, sign-on bonuses, and obviously wages are going up tremendously as well. Now, that shortage is also trickling down to the supply chain at places like Papa John's and Wingstop, according to its CEOs. The issue is being felt at businesses nationwide. In fact, the National Federation of Independent Business says 44% of small businesses have jobs that they cannot fill right now. That's a record high, Dom, for the third straight month. Economists say, as you heard in Steve's report, more to this than just enhanced benefits. There's uncertainty for potential employees around things like childcare issues, health concerns, and much more. Just one more hurdle for an industry that's really struggling to rebound from its most difficult year in decades. Back over to you. We keep hearing those superlatives about CEOs at restaurant companies saying this is the toughest environment they've ever seen for labor. Kate Rogers, thank you very much for that. Now, the next guest that we have here is a third generation restaurant owner who says he's definitely feeling the hiring pinch as he reopens locations. Let's welcome in Alan Rosen. He's the owner of the iconic Junior's Restaurants in New York City, famous for the cheesecake. My waistline cannot handle as much of it anymore in my older age, but still, you're making great cheesecake. Can you sell them, given the fact that there is perhaps a labor shortage out there? Yes, yes, we can, is the short answer. But there definitely, we are seeing signs. You know, we're looking to re-staff for restaurants we went from 850 employees down to 150 during the pandemic. We're now back up to 350, but we're now starting to hit a little bit of a wall and seeing that people have, you know, there's, there's three things at play in the rehiring thing, I think. One, you know, some of our restaurants have been closed for 14 months. We just reopened one last week. A lot of people have pivoted. I know one of my managers who I had a very good relationship with called me during the pandemic. She said, I got this great offer at this supermarket chain and now she doesn't have to work nights. And so I think that's figuring into it. Um, people have pivoted their careers, but certainly the added unemployment benefits have kept some people on the sidelines during this recovery. So, 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 I mean, Alan, that, that, that flies in the face of what the Biden administration is currently saying right now. They feel as though enhanced unemployment is not the reason why you're seeing a labor shortage right now. It could be other things like uncertainty about child care, uncertainty yep. about health in the future, that sort of thing. How exactly then does a business owner, small, medium or large, remedy that situation to get people back into their places to work if the economy is to ramp up the way we want to post-pandemic? There's a couple of things. One, I think we're going to have to do more with less, which we've been figuring out out of COVID, how to simplify our operations and just be more efficient. Uh, number two, I think as you see 
the reopening effect happen and you get towards the fall, I think this is going to loosen up greatly. We're going to be more inclined to be at 100% of our business, and people are going to be realizing that those benefits are going to be sunsetting, and it's time to get back to work. So, 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 so if, 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 if you don't mind, if I, if I follow up on this, if you feel Please. as though things normalize by the fall and then things kind of get back to normal, people will then want to come back to work again. You, you made a reference to the fact that you are, you're, you're running more efficiently, leaner these days because you've had to. Do you foresee as a restaurant owner that you will stick with some of those types of efficiencies going forward? In other words, will you be hiring fewer people because of technological or labor advances in what you have in your restaurants? The short answer is I don't know, because when our restaurants get back, we have three of the top grossing restaurants in the United States of America. And when they're going full tilt, it's hard for me to imagine us doing more with less in that environment. But right now in this environment, we're certainly doing more with less because, you know, we reopened a store last week. Our sales, you know, we hit 30 percent of what our normal sales would be. Granted, it was our first week open. And I think that's a pretty good open. But, you know, as these numbers grow, it's, it's, it remains to be seen how, how, how much efficiency we actually get in what I call a really labor intensive business, the restaurant industry. All right. That's Alan Rosen of Junior's Restaurants. We wish you good luck with your recovery from the COVID pandemic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. And you need to come eat some cheesecake. Yeah, I'll see if I can exercise enough first. Thank you very much, Alan. Well, coming up on the show, is the rotation to value stocks still alive and well? One of our next guests says yes, and she has three stocks poised to benefit. That's coming up ahead. Plus, meal kit meets technology. Scan a code. Let the hands-off cooking commence. One company betting big on the home trends, even as the economy starts to reopen. The CEO of that company joins us straight ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. We have breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Elon Moy has the story there. Good afternoon, Elon. Hi, Dom. The Treasury Department is announcing that $350 billion in aid to state and local governments will start going out in a matter of days. Now, that was part of the COVID relief package that passed back in March, and it's generated some controversy since then because states cannot use the money to directly or indirectly finance tax cuts. Now, several Republican states have sued over this provision. Today, Treasury officials said these types of rules are not new, and they're intended to ensure that states use the money the way Congress intended, like for COVID-related costs, to replace lost revenue or for premium pay for essential workers. Also important to note, the money cannot be used to shore up pension funds or to service debt. Now, local governments will receive half of their federal money this month and the other half a year from now. But states where the jobless rate is still two percentage points higher than it was pre-pandemic will get all of their money in one lump sum. Expect President Biden to highlight this funding during his remarks later this hour. White House advisors believe that state and local budget cuts held back the recovery from the Great Recession. So, Don, they said that this is responding to the lessons of the past in a powerful way. Back over to you. All right, Elon Moy, live in Washington with the latest there. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, could 2021 become the year of the shareholder revolt? IBM, General Electric and AT&T all had their CEO pay plans rejected. We look at the trend and the companies that could be next coming up. Plus, one analyst says Wall Street is too bullish on Facebook and Google's slice of the online advertising market. We look at why and whether he's right. We'll be back in two minutes. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now have moderated their gains and losses. You can see the Dow is up about 236 points. It was up 313 at the highs. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq was off 1.5% just about 5, 10 minutes ago. It's off about 1.3% right now, still 189 points to the downside. We're also watching shares of Duke Energy jumping higher intraday, as you can see here. Dow Jones is reporting that Elliott Management has taken a stake in the utility and is pushing to add board members with activist investor getting involved there. That's what's in those shares up about 4% right now. Electric vehicle, EV and alternative energy stocks are also getting slammed today. Workhorse seeing the biggest losses down by about 14%, followed by Fisker, Plug Power and Blink, among others. Very much a red day for alternative energy type companies. Chip stocks also starting the week lower as well. Every constituent in the Vanek Vectors Semiconductor ETF, ticker SMH, is down at least 1% today. Corvo is the biggest lagger, down 6%, also one of the biggest losses in the S&P 500. And then some of the recent tech IPOs in the red as well, including Snowflake, Unity Software, Palantir. Some of those hot IPOs over the last year are down in trading today. Now let's send it over to Rahel Solomon, who has a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Rahel. Hi, Dom. Hello, everyone. The White House says that it has concerns about the situation in Israel as Hamas launches missiles from Gaza toward Jerusalem, setting off air raid sirens and injuring one person outside the city. There's also a report of nine deaths after an explosion in Gaza. It's unclear if that's the result of a Hamas missile gone astray or retaliation by Israel. Attorneys general from 44 states are pushing Facebook to drop plans for a version of Instagram designed for children under 13. They say they're concerned about mental health problems associated with social media and bullying. Facebook says that the new version will give parents more control. And to Texas now, where a tiger was apparently on the loose in a residential neighborhood. There is the tiger. Police there only saying that it's an ongoing investigation. As onlookers took photographs, a man is said to have come out of a house nearby, taking the tiger inside before later loading it onto a truck and driving away all before police arrived. But I do believe that's the second tiger sighting in the loose uh, in a residential neighborhood, Dom, in the last year or so. I'm not sure how I would react to seeing a tiger in my front yard outside. Here's hoping you never have to, Dom. I don't know. I, I, there's, there's an adventurous part of me that might want to see it, Rahel. Oh, know. Okay. I don't know. Who knows? Adrenaline junkie. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Rahel. Sure. Well, no advantage for Facebook and Google. Advantage. Get it there. Chance the Rapper's silver screen deal and Gronk has diamond hands. All that and more coming up in today's rapid fire. And as we head out to break, a reminder that May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Today, we are highlighting CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Song. I think being an outsider gives you some huge advantages. Uh, you know, I know personally from quite often being the only Asian American person in the room, you know, you develop a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. You want to outwork your competitors because that is within your control. That work ethic is really useful. I think it's rocket fuel for career success. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, Robert Frank, and Molly Wood, host and senior editor of the Marketplace Tech Show. Thank you guys all, both for all of you for being here. First up, City is taking the kings of digital advertising down a peg. Take a look at this particular story because the firm is downgrading Facebook and Google, the parent company Alphabet, to neutral despite robust Internet ad growth over the past two quarters. 
Shares of Facebook and Alphabet, as you can see there, are down 4 and 3% respectively. Citi saying it is not recommending any large-cap ad-centric Internet stocks except Roku. Instead, the firm is exercising caution because ad intensity is not rising and the industry is headed for a period of deceleration. Deceleration, Molly Wood. Is there any such thing in the world of digital advertising? I thought it could only go up. I am going to say I also thought it could only go up. I was sort of surprised to hear this. And I think it's actually a bet on a bit more regulation and maybe a bit more scrutiny around the metrics of digital advertising because it has only gone up. But very often we've seen that maybe some of the metrics are a little bit inflated, particularly on Facebook. Maybe advertisers are not actually getting the, you know, magically measurable results from every ad that they were sort of promised. And they might be looking back to television, back to more traditional advertising methods or saying, look, Facebook and Google aren't going to be allowed to get a lot bigger. Pendulum swinging, mean reversion. There's a lot of different ways to look at this, Leslie Picker. I I I wonder, though, if in the pandemic era that we've kind of gone through and are still going through a bit right now, if some of those things have stuck, because I know that my screen time has shot through the roof over the course of the last year. <laughs> so if there was anybody who would be more receptive to digital advertising, it would be somebody like me who has spent a lot more time in front of their iPad over the course of the year. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you bring up two good points. Is there going to be a reversion to the mean happening, meaning people who, like yourself, like myself, have been glued to our screens for the last year and now maybe want to do things that aren't as screen intensive, or are some of these habits going to be stickier? Interestingly, in this city note, they said that the one large cap internet advertising company that they do still recommend is actually Roku because they believe that the streaming uh, penetration has not yet reached full throttle. Uh, so I think that's a, a big question, and it's one where we're not quite getting a clear, concise answer from the street right now. Robert, have you bought anything because of social media? I, I just bought a I have a couple of scratches in my car right now. I saw a, a, a social media <laughs> ad for something to buff out scratches. And what did I do? I bought it. So, so are you buying stuff from, from your social media feeds? Dom, I thought you were going to say I bought a new car, and that would have been really cool if you bought a new car from social <laughs> no, media. I did not. Uh, but, but, but I know you're more thrifty than that. Uh, look, what was interesting about this, to Molly's point, is it did not mention regulation and their dominance. And what it talked about were these difficult second quarter comps that are coming up. That's true for all stay-at-home companies and tech companies. And what I think about when I think about the next few quarters is the number of of small to medium-sized companies that have gone under during the pandemic, and now the number of small to medium-sized companies that have started since the pandemic and will start in the next few months, and that will need some kind of online advertising to get exposure, to get people aware of their new brands, I just think that churn is going to generate a lot of new demand in the online ad space. Plus, to your point, a lot of people have these new habits that are not going to go away. All right. We'll, we'll see what happens. I'm trying to spend more time outside these days and less time in front of my iPad. Anyway. All right. Next up here, we've got shareholder <laughs> support in 2021 for U.S. executive bonuses at its lowest level since 2011. That's according to new data. So far, six S&P 500 companies, including GE, AT&T, IBM, and Starbucks, have failed to win support for executive pay packages. This year, average support has dropped below 88% 
from a high of nearly 92 percent for executive comp back in 2015. Leslie, are the days of just green lighting a CEO's pay package gone? At least in the short run. Um, interestingly, we're seeing a rate of about 3.5% uh, rejection from, for these uh, compensation proposals. Historically, it's been closer to 1.6%, so more than double uh, the rejection rate that we're seeing thus far uh, in this proxy season. Now, what's going on here? A lot of it has to do with the fact that in 2020, Asset managers really did give management a pass. They said, we're not going to be too aggressive here. We're going to let you kind of handle the pandemic, figure out what's going on with your employee base, with other things. Uh, But in the meantime, we are going to be very vocal on the record by saying we really want there to be meaningful change on the ESG side of things, environmental social governance. So the G for governance, a lot of that has to do with how executives are compensated. So there's this expectation now in 2021 for asset managers to be a little bit more um, aggressive on that front, to, to scrutinize these pay packages as opposed to just saying, you know, kind of blanket yes, we're going to approve all these things. Now they they really have to kind of put their money or at least they're voting where their mouth has been in 2020. Robert, there's been a lot of popular backlash over the last several months here with regard to pay packages, especially at companies that were hardest hit during the pandemic that then saw CEO pay packages, not because of salary, but because maybe they were granted options or stock units that have now gone up tremendously in value over the course of the year because the market has gone up tremendously in value over the years. How much do you think there is in terms of backlash facing these CEOs, knowing that their pay is now so much more than the quote-unquote average employee at their companies? Yeah, look, I'm all for pay for performance. I mean, these companies, these jobs are demanding. This was a hard period of time. But look, you look at Union Pacific, they just wiped out the second quarter when it came to meeting the performance target. So they just took out the bad quarter when determining that CEO's bonus. You look at NCL, they lost $4 billion. They laid off 20% of the workforce and the CEO was paid $36 million. I just think that maybe there should be a Powell factor or a Fed factor where you say, okay, the rest of the entire market went up because of factors beyond the CEO's control. So therefore, we should take that out of their compensation and really make it pay for performance. It's just a more complicated story there for for sure. Now, let's talk about some of the movies, specifically AMC Entertainment, as the company announces it will release Chance the Rapper's concert film exclusively in theaters at its theaters this summer. Now, the film is titled Magnificent Coloring World. It marks the first time a recording artist will distribute a movie through AMC. Partnerships could mark a way for theaters to reach a younger audience. Shares of AMC are higher today. The stock is up over, speaking of, 400% from its 52-week low that we saw not long after the pandemic. So, Molly... This is Chance the Rapper. He's got a reputation. He's kind of like on his own. He does his own thing. He's gotten a lot of notoriety. How much of this pandemic has now tilted audiences towards alternative ways of distributing content? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have to see what audiences do, whether they want to go see this. I will say that AMC, I applaud them for being creative and thinking about ways to get other content, especially since we're likely to see a bit of a Hollywood drought coming out of the pandemic. 
The thing is, though, they're going to have to take those seats out and turn it into a chance dance party. You can't just expect Gen Z to show up and sort of like buy the same old boring snacks and, and sit there in the same old uncomfortable seats. And so I think there will probably be more innovation needed to turn this into a new model. But I do think, you know, good for them for capitalizing on their kind of lottery winnings and for taking a chance with something different because a two and a half hour sequel to a sequel to a sequel to a sequel isn't going to get my kid into theaters forever. Robert, I, I, I look at you right now because I'm wondering it, during your, the course of your reporting this story at, at some point in the future, will you find out for me if Chance the Rapper is getting compensated in AMC stock in any way? I just, I just keep, I keep thinking to myself, this is a way to capitalize on maybe one of those types of trends. He's going to get paid in Dogecoin, Dom. We, we know that. It's not going to be Ethereum for NFTs or anything like that. <laughs> All right, guys. And moving on to our, our last topic here. It was a big weekend for cryptocurrency. Speaking of Robert, he did up perfectly here. Bitcoin is back to a three-week high. Dogecoin is on pace for its worst day since January 30th after borking it during Tesla CEO's Elon Musk appearance on Saturday Night Live. Ether blasted past $4,000 per token to a new record high which is music to Ether holders' ears, including Tampa Bay tight end Rob Gronkowski. He appeared on CNBC to talk about his NFT. The crypto has been on a tear since then in what we at CNBC would like to call the Gronk spike. Uh, uh, Robert, I'm going to look at you because NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and those are, that's your world right now. What exactly do we make of this move, divergence in the force, a.k.a. cryptocurrencies. Oh, Dom, I always think of that story that you tell, and I don't know what the latest price is, but remember that pizza that sold in 2010? 10,000 bitcoins. 10,000 bitcoins. Yeah, so now it's a $500 million pizza at this point, maybe $600 million, whatever bitcoin is trading now. But I think about that, and it's, it's one of two reasons why currencies, these cryptocurrencies just don't make for good currencies. Number one is the tax treatment. You have to pay the capital gains tax on any gain that you had on that crypto when you buy it. So when you use crypto to buy something, you pay capital gain on that crypto. And secondly, you're giving up all that upside. So Gronk's now, he sold that stuff for 1.8. It's now worth $3 million didn't cost him anything, really, to make those NFTs. So, of course, he's holding. And I just think this is also the sort of <laughs> declining dominance of Bitcoin. This is all about the altcoins, Dogecoin, Ethereum, and now Ethereum Classic, which I guess like Coke Classic is the same but better. I don't know. But it's all these alternative coins from Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is kind of fading a little bit in terms of its growth. That's because it's not growing as fast as Dogecoin and other altcoins are. Leslie Picker, have you paid for anything in cryptocurrency? Have you used it to pay for anything? I know about as much about cryptocurrency, Dom, as I do about football. Um, but no, I have not paid for anything with cryptocurrency. I have tried to stay neutral in the world of cryptocurrency as, you know, our attempt to cover it. So not to, you know have any kind of bias toward one uh, cryptocurrency versus another. Um, so, yeah, I'm just watching from the sidelines in awe, wishing that I were a celebrity who could single-handedly change the price of something um, and then benefit from it. All right. Well, But that's just not, that's not in the cards for me. No. Not in the cards for me this lifetime. Molly, last word to you. What's your altcoin that intrigues you the most? 
I mean, I can't believe I'm going to say that I think Gronk is having better instincts than Elon Musk here. But the thing about Ethereum is, you know, Bitcoin unquestionably is unwieldy as a currency and slowing down as an asset class. Ethereum was built to be a financial tool, a set of real financial tools that could in the long term and maybe even the short term take power away from banks. So instead of being like a joke cryptocurrency that's been built up by Elon Musk or something that is now so far out of the realm of usability because of all of the things that you mentioned, taxes and trying to figure out how to pay for anything. Ethereum, I think, has long-term value as a true alternative to traditional banking. So go Gronk. All right. Joseph Lubin's probably (laughs) thinking that's a good take on that whole thing. All right, guys, thank you very much. Leslie Picker, Robert Frank, Molly Wood, we appreciate it. Still ahead on the show, from copper to semis to online shopping, one fund manager is seeing buying opportunities even as the Dow hits a record high. She joins us next with those names coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Dow hitting another record high today and crossing 35,000 for the first time ever. It's now on track for a sixth straight day of gains. The S&P 500 is also near an all-time high, but the Nasdaq is taking a hit, as you can see there, down more than 1% so far. Our next guest says this all means the rotation into value stocks is alive and well, and she's got three names to play the trend. Joining me now is Vanessa Martinez, Managing Director and Partner at the Learner Group. So let's talk about value. It's hard to think that you can find value in this kind of market. Where exactly are you finding it? I think value, well, it's all perception, right? But value, when it comes to yield, we can definitely find some in commodity names. One specific name that we find quite attractive is Vale. And this is where we kind of stick between the passive and active investing. If you look at Vale, you can see the growth. It actually hit at some point today $23, which is great. But commodities are rising because the economy is reopening. This is definitely a buy for us. Selective in the sense that if you look at the MSCI Brazil ETF, Vale happens to be 20% of it. Yet, it's only up about 3% on the year. But if you look year to date, Vale is up 36%. This is definitely a buy. All right. So that's iron ore. That's the metallurgical pellets for smelting steel, that sort of thing. Are there places within technology that you think are still valuable right now with a value trade? We do. We believe Intel is a spot that gives you value as well as future growth. So it has decided to invest in its company, $3.5 billion to be specific, just in its New York manufacturing plant. But it's also projected out to do multiple billions between its other U.S. locations as well as internationally. So we believe a company that has that confidence in future growth is a company to buy specifically with chip shortage, right? It has an advantage. And now that we have chips in absolutely everything we own, which I never thought I'd have chips in my stove, but I guess we have them everywhere now. So, so, so uh, uh, that, that's a curious point there. I, I'm also curious within technology, there are also places that have run really high, really fast, but that some people still consider to be of value. Are there any that fit the bill in your book? Yes, there is one that I hold near and dear. (laughs) For the past couple of years, I've been very bullish on Shopify. So this stock seems like an expensive stock. So we tend to not call it a value stock, 
but I personally do because I believe it has room for growth. I compare it even to what some might be shocked at, but like a mini Amazon. And what I really value about Shopify is how much dedication it provides to its small business owners. And it now has this new sector within itself called Shopify Capital. And it gives these small businesses between 200 to $1 million sure. in like merchant capital. I think that is a wonderful thing to provide your clients. All right, Vanessa, Vanessa Martinez at the Learner Group. Her call, Intel, Vale, and Shopify. Thank you very much. Have a nice day, ma'am. All right, well, still ahead, too busy to cook. We're going to talk to the founder of Tovala, whose smart oven will scan a QR code and then cook your meal. And it's caught the attention of some major brands. That's coming up next. Welcome back. Many food delivery and meal subscription services like Blue Apron and Grubhub saw a boost in users during the height of the pandemic as everyone started to stay at home and ordered in. But the same names have had a tough go of it as economies reopen. So are things going back to pre-pandemic levels or at stay-at-home trends habits here to stay. Join me now is David Rabbi, co-founder and CEO of food subscription service Tovala. I see a toaster oven behind you. Is that what you guys are using to cook this food? It's great to be here, Dom. I appreciate it. That's, that's part of the package. Tovala really is your secret weapon because it combines this smart oven that you see behind me with these chef prepared meals. So we send you these meals. They're pre-packed, have mostly raw ingredients. All you do to cook them is scan a QR code. It's like home cooking, but without any of the work. All right. So, so I, I'm a hungry guy, as you can tell by my figure right now. I look at those boxes and I think to myself, that's not enough food to feed me. Is it enough food? And is there a diet component to it? So, so the meals are mostly clean ingredients. Uh, they range in calories. Call it the, the super low end is about 400 calories. They'll go all the way up to 800 calories. And, and they've got, you know, wholesome, full protein. So chicken breast, salmon, trout, uh, steak, uh, they, they are quite filling. And, and you can kind of cater it to whatever diet you've got yourself. So, so David, I'm, we're watching the video right now of your product and it's being made. And I'm looking at the size of the boxes and I'm looking at the size of the oven behind you. What if I have a family of four? Does it, does it all fit in that, in, in that toaster oven? So the meals are designed generally for one to two people. You can cook two meals at once. Uh, we definitely have families that order from Tavala, but they tend to be families where people are eating at different times. So my wife and I, for example, we've got a 15-month-old at home. She eats dinner at 6 o'clock, and then my wife and I will throw our meals into the Tavala at 7 o'clock, eat dinner together, and every meal cooks in 20 minutes or less. So it can accommodate all kinds of busy schedules that a, a large family might have. Can you take us through, David, the economics of this? H how much does each portion cost? What exactly is the subscription bundle, if you will? How does it come? Is it weekly, biweekly? How does that work? Sure. So you purchase the oven. You can get it for as low as $199, uh, as long as you order six times in six months. Uh, in terms of the meals, there's you know, 15, 16, sometimes as many as 18 meals per week on the menu, and the menu changes on a regular basis. You can order as few as three meals, as many as 12, even more if you want, on a weekly basis. Uh, and it is a subscription, but it's, it's very easy to skip, pause, or cancel. And, and really part of what makes us special is uh, people stick with the service in a way that they don't with other meal services. And the Tavala is a constant reminder of the service because it's sitting on people's countertops People are ordering our meals, but they're also using it to toast bread, to scan frozen grocery products, to cook things from their app. 
it gets over 30 uses per month on average. So it is one of the most used things in people's homes. We've just got a little bit of time left. I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into where you think the hottest demand is for your product. Is there a certain demographic, a certain geographic region? So the interesting thing about Tavala, it's got a really wide breadth of customers. You might think this is targeted to people living in big cities in New York or San Francisco, but, but the reality is we target busy couples in their 30s and 40s, and we target empty nesters that are tired of cooking and, and want a high-quality meal. So it spans a wide range, and that's part of what's driven our tremendous growth over the last 18 months. All right, Tovala, smart ovens and pre-portioned food. David Rabbi, thank you very much to you, and good luck with your venture, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.